Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Grace Church, Medina East Campus. How you guys doing this morning, 915? Yeah, you should be a really lively crowd today because we all got an extra hour worth of sleep. Glory be to God. Praise his name. Well, good morning, everyone, again. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Grace Church Medina East Campus. I'm really excited uh, that we are here together to do what we typically do every weekend, kind of weekend in and weekend out here at Grace Church Medina, and that is to connect with one another in community, to build relationships, but also to do this, if you really think about it, this rather strange and maybe even potentially unorthodox thing where we all gather together in one, simple, in one single room, as well as those of you who are joining online, we all kind of gather in these ways. And we look to, like we seek to mine and unearth this collection of ancient texts that's assembled together that we know, that we know as or that we call the Bible. Think about it, that's a little strange, but it's less strange when you know something about what we believe that the Bible is. That it's not just a random collection of books written by multiple authors over several centuries, but that according to the Bible itself, that the word of God, this Bible, this collection of text, is living and active. That it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And so that the word of God, the Bible, when we unpack it, when we open its pages, when we kind of sit underneath it and posture ourselves in humility under its teaching, we believe that we're actually hearing from God himself and that God has some definitive things he wants to say to us that pertain to who he is and what he's like, who we are as human beings, and specifically like the beautiful thing of the way he has designed us to relate with him in powerful and dynamic ways. And so uh, this weekend, we are actually going to be continuing in a series that's going to be rooted in the Bible, in this book called the Book of Acts. It's actually a series that we've been in for a couple months now, and we've called this series, again, as you can see on the screen behind me, Activated Followers of the Way. Activated Followers of the Way. And essentially what we've been doing in this series is we have been looking at the early church, the early followers of Jesus, and we've been looking at the message that they proclaimed. We are right now in kind of the second movement or the second phase of the series where we're gonna be looking at the sense of mission and purpose the early church, these early followers of Jesus had. And then in the future, after Christmas, we're gonna look at some of the methods of the early church. And now what we're doing in this series is not simply looking at what they believed about, especially in the second movement, this mission movement that we're in today. 
We're looking at this series, not just to know what their sense of mission and purpose was, but we're looking to mine that. We're looking to discover that a little bit more so that we can see the relevancy of that same mission and purpose in our lives if we follow Jesus today in the church today. To discover by their practices and their beliefs and their activities, how we as followers of Jesus today might be activated into the mission and purpose that God has through Jesus Christ and by his spirit to the world. To make the good news and the gospel message about Jesus known. And that is our mission. And I just died. Oh, I'm back. Okay, excellent. That's fantastic. So uh, I didn't really die. That was kind of an awkward way to say that. But anyway, so uh, today, without further ado, as we look to unpack the message or the mission of Jesus in the early church, we are going to go right to the Bible. So if you brought your Bibles today, you can begin to make your way to this passage right here. So Acts chapter 2, specifically verses 1 through 14. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. Now, because we've been going thematically through the book of Acts, you may know that we looked at Acts chapter two several weeks back, but because we're going thematically and we're focusing on the mission, we're gonna return here to something that is known as the day of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. Now, this day of Pentecost is uh, known by many scholars, Bible geeks, and theologians as the birthday of the church. So what we're gonna get today is an account of the church's birthday, the inauguration, the generation, the birth of Jesus's followers as a group of people known as the church. So if you don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles under the seats in front of you. Acts chapter two is gonna be on page 883 in those Bibles, and you can choose to follow along if you so desire that way. But because we are looking at the birth of the church today, I want you to just close your eyes for a second, and I want you to just, in your mind's eye, imagine slicing the cake, bringing out the confetti, grabbing the gifts. Now you can open your eyes, because we're gonna witness the birth of little baby church today, okay? Acts chapter two, let's read it. Here's what Luke, who is the author of Acts, says. He says, when the day of Pentecost came, the birthday of the church, the disciples, they, the disciples of Jesus, these 12 men were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw, these disciples saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began, as a result of this, starts to get weird, doesn't it? To speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, Luke says, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews, this is important, from every nation under heaven. So let's pause here for a second. There is a scattered Jewish people as a result of their exile about 400 years prior to. And right now at this festival of Pentecost that would have been celebrated by Jewish people every year, those who were scattered in the people groups and the known nations around the world have come together for this festival of Pentecost. They've gathered into Jerusalem. And so what we get in verse five is these Jewish people from every nation under heaven are almost representing the nations being gathered to Jerusalem, which is a prophetic and anticipated hope of the Old Testament prophets that the nations would gather in Jerusalem. So Luke says that there were these God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven representing the nations coming to Jerusalem. And when these guys heard this sound, they gathered as a crowd, a crowd came together in bewilderment. And who wouldn't be bewildered at some of the stuff that's going on, right? because each one heard their own language being spoken. Did you get that? Their own language, their own dialect, their own tongue, they heard in their own language the stuff that the disciples were saying by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
utterly amazed. And again, who wouldn't be, right? They asked, well, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? In other words, aren't these guys uneducated Jewish men who can't even figure out how to speak in their own language properly? How is it that each of us who are gathered here hears them in our native language? There's a little catalog that Luke goes through of the nations and the people groups that are represented here. Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We are hearing them declaring, super important, the mighty works of God, the wonders of God, and we hear it in our own language, in ways that we can understand. Amazed and perplexed, this is now the third time that Luke has described the reaction of bewilderment and perplexity. Amazed and perplexed, they began to ask one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and they said, they have had too much wine. And then Peter stands up along with the 11, he raised his voice and he addressed the crowd. Now, if we were to read on here in Acts chapter two, we would discover that Peter stands up and gives a powerful sermon that attests to the reality of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus came among them, that he died on a cross for the forgiveness of sins for humanity, and that God his father powerfully raised him from the dead. The central core piece of New Testament teaching, the resurrection of Jesus, that God raised him from the dead, and that because Jesus has life, he has the right to give life to whomever he will. That people can have the fullness of life when they put their faith and their trust and their hope in Jesus. Peter stands up and he declares all of this. Now, as we're looking at this passage, I think it's very easy for us to say, like, first things first, we probably would have, if we're reading this rightly, we probably would, would have a similar reaction to the crowd in this particular episode as they are witnessing or experiencing what's going on here, all the phenomena, all the crazy events. We might ask the same thing that they did. What does this mean, right? Well, why would we ask, what does this mean? Why would we be bewildered and perplexed? Well, probably because, again, if we're reading this well, if we're really intentional, let's just be honest, right? There is a lot of really crazy stuff, wacky, bizarre, supernatural kind of things. Kind of like Dana Carvey from Saturday Night Live in the late 80s when he was mocking Johnny Carson. He would say this, what we have in Acts 2 is some weird, wild stuff. I mean, we got some weird, wild stuff going on here, right? All right, first of all, think about it. We have the sound like the blowing of a violent wind. So this sound, not the wind itself, but the sound like the cacophony of sound and the swirls is filling the room. This is crazy. And now some of you, I know you're thinking, well, that's not actually all that abnormal. That's not weird because this is the same thing that I experience every Christmas when Uncle Jack overindulges in the baked beans and he serves up his Pentecost special, right? To everybody who is in smell shot? I don't know, no shot, right? But so you might be, and I know that was disgusting. I also realized that was utterly uncalled for, but let's be honest, it's accurate, isn't it? We all have an Uncle Jack that we meet with at Christmas, right? But not only do we have the sound, this crazy stuff of the blowing of a violent wind, we also have other things, tongues of fire that are coming to rest on the disciples. This is bizarre. This is just not normal. We have them speaking in other tongues. We have the crowd hearing in their own dialects the wonderful works of God as they're speaking in these languages. 
And then we have the bewilderment of the crowd. And potentially, quite potentially, we have the most miraculous thing in this passage that it leads to. We have Peter, who is a disciple of Jesus, who is routinely known in the Gospels as sticking his foot in his mouth. We have him standing up and giving what is arguably the most clear-cut presentation of the gospel that you will ever hear that has ever been uttered in all of human history. Now listen, whenever we have the crazy occurrences like this that we have or we find in scripture, when we run across these, I feel like there's just maybe one of two impulses or inclinations that many of us, that the different personalities in this room right now that are represented, that many of us tend to exhibit when we encounter the weird and the bizarre in scripture. And I think, I think if I can generally summarize, the tendency that we might have to respond to this might look like this, one of two ways, that we either are tempted to be drawn in or we're tempted to drown out. So we either are drawn into what's happening in this account or we wanna drown it out altogether. So let me just unpack this here for you for a second. If you are the drawn in type, if you're, some of us are drawn into the mystical and the weird and the bizarre, right? The crazy, like aliens founded the planet kind of stuff. You're like, I'm in, I wanna know more about this, right? You're drawn to that like a moth to a flame. Now be honest with me. How many of you would say when you read a passage like this, you are drawn and you're like, I want that. How many of you, how many of you? Yeah, the brave ones among us. You're like, yeah, like a moth to a flame. You're the ones that have the rather zesty approach to life, aren't you? You're, you're the ones who long for the otherworldly. You're the ones who long for the extraordinary. Now, listen, lest you misunderstand me, I don't think that that is all bad. If you are a drawn-in kind of person, I don't think that's all bad. Why? Well, because if you read any of the stories about what Jesus did in his ministry— And then if you were to continue to read on in the book of Acts as to what followers of Jesus did in the name of Jesus and what happened, you would just have to flat out say that this stuff is not normal. It's extraordinary. It's supernatural. It's weird. But I do think that if we lean on or if this is our inclination and we are so bought into this kind of inclination, it can create some hindrances for us as we think about what it would mean to follow Jesus perseverantly in the day to day. For some of us who take a drawn-in approach, we want the spiritual experiences constantly. So what happens when we don't get the spiritual experiences? What happens in the mundane and the routine? What would it look like to follow Jesus, to be faithful to him, when things in life, things happening in life, aren't like something straight out of stranger things, right? But for those of us who are drawn in, some of us take the opposite tack. Our inclination, our impulse when we read the weird and the bizarre in scripture is that we want to drown it out entirely. We would love to drown out any and all suggestion that Jesus, by the power of his Holy Spirit, would do anything outside the laws of physics, right? So we're the ones that are a little bit more the logical, right? The rational, the calculated, right? We, now, now, don't get me wrong, this too, I think, this approach, I think it has some positives, right? Because if that's you, chances are you're never going to get led astray by a cult leader. You're not going to do that. Neither is your bank account going to be liquidated to fund the jet of the latest prosperity preacher that you see on TV. It's not going to happen. But I do think in the same way that there could be some hindrances and some obstacles in the drawn-ins, for the drown-outs, it's the same as well. If we're honest, there's negatives to it. Because we, if we sort of buy into and adopt and hold tightly to this reaction or this inclination, we might, be some, we, we might become so closed off to the idea 
that check this out, the living and all-powerful God who is constantly breaking into human history throughout the Bible, constantly doing this. We might be closed off to the idea that that God who constantly breaks into human history would possibly, he couldn't possibly break apart our own preconceived notions, would he? About what is acceptable, what he would do, right? He couldn't possibly blow the lid off our categories, could he? Now listen, both of these, I think they have their positives, but I also think they can be hindrances. And actually, as I've studied and as I've investigated a little bit more here, the, uh, the things that are happening in Acts 2, I think I've slowly discovered that both of these impulses actually miss the target. They miss the mark. And more than just missing the mark and the target on how to understand and grapple with what's going on here in Acts 2, I think if we so rigidly cling to these defaults, to these inclinations, I think that they actually have the potential to distract us from something that Luke, as he's narrating this account, actually would long for us, he really wants us to grab a hold of, that he really wants us to see. And so rather than, and if we can do this this morning, I think there's some powerful results that could materialize as a result of it. If we can, instead of imbibing the supernatural and the Holy Spirit, or instead of eschewing these things that we find in scripture altogether, I might offer us instead what I think is a solid working hypothesis of really understanding what Acts 2 is all about. And my hypothesis is this, that Acts 2 is not first and foremost about an individualized spiritual supernatural experience. It it may include that, but it is not first and foremost about a spiritual experience that we should adopt or pattern ourselves after what we see there in Acts 2. Instead, I think, I think this is pivotal to understanding what Luke wants us to see. Pentecost is not about my own spiritual experience. Pentecost is about mission. Pentecost is about mission. Specifically, it is about the history-wide, history-spanning mission of God to bring salvation and rescue to people in lost, hopeless, and dark places. That It is about the history-spanning mission of God to make himself known throughout the world to every single nation, tribe, tongue, and people group. And more specifically, I think Pentecost is going to show us not the what as much, but the how of that history-spanning mission. In other words, I believe very strongly that Pentecost shows how God's desire to make himself known to the world, how that gets out into the world to those who desperately need to know him and experience his salvation and relate with him powerfully. Pentecost is about the how God gets his mission accomplished. And so you might be asking, okay, well, if Pentecost is about the how, how did you arrive at that, Seth? How did you arrive at that? Well, I am really glad that you asked. Let's actually begin here. Let's actually begin with the word Pentecost itself. In other words, why does Luke deem it important to specify right at the outset of Acts chapter two, why does Luke feel it important to specify that this particular, or these particular events happened on this day rather than any other day? All right, so first, here's what you need to know. The word Pentecost itself is actually a Greek term. It literally, it's what you would say if you were a Greek-speaking person, Pentecost. 
And Pentecost, in the original language, in the Greek that lies behind this passage, it literally means 50, or if you prefer, 50, right? So it's actually a number. So if you were going to count 47, 48, 49, Pentecost, that's what you would do. Now, why Pentecost? Well, why 50? Well, actually, 50 was very well known by the Jewish people of Jesus' day in in the early church. 50 was known as an annual festival that was celebrated by the Jewish people to commemorate something that happened in their history. And the reason it was called 50 is because this particular festival, Pentecost, happened, imagine this, 50 days after another celebration, another festival, another feast that they had called Passover. Now, Passover commemorated the liberation of their ancestors, the Jewish people's ancestors, the people of Israel, from slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. And you can read about that in the early chapters of the book of Exodus. So basically, what they would do is they would count off 50 from Passover, and they would celebrate this feast called Pentecost. We're like, what was so significant about the 50 days? Well, listen, in, the two, in about the 200 years prior to Jesus arriving on the scene that we get in the New Testament, the Jewish sages and leaders and scholars began to mine and pour themselves over their sacred texts. And they quickly discovered that there was a correlation between the celebration of the Feast of Pentecost, and check this out, the giving of the law by God to the people that occurred in Exodus 19 at the foot of Mount Sinai. And this was because after, as they were trying to like mine and pour over these texts, they realized that uh, when the people of Israel left Egypt, that it was exactly, precisely 50 days after that liberation that the people came to the foot of that mountain and God brought them to himself. God bound himself in a covenant relationship with Israel. He, in effect, said, Israel, I rescued you. I'm going to be your God. Beside me, there is no other. And he says, Israel, you're going to be my people. So as your God, I'm going to preserve you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to guide you and lead you into the life that I desire for you. And he says, in reciprocation, at the foot of this mountain at Sinai, he says, in reciprocation, I want you to obey my statutes. I give you my law, which are almost like the rules or the the rhythms of the kind of relationship that we are going to have. And he says, I want you to be obedient to this law. And that happens exactly, exactly 50 days after the people are released from Egypt. So in some respects, you can say that Pentecost throughout Israel's history celebrated the birth of Israel, the constitution of Israel as God's people, where they were formerly a ragtag group of slaves who were only affiliated with one another because they shared a common ancestor, God brings them out of Egypt by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. 50 days afterwards, he places them at Mount Sinai and he says, you're different, you're unique, you're birthed, you're my people. So what we are celebrating here is maybe, in a sense, a tale of two birthdays today, right? We have the birthday of the church in Acts 2. And here in a second, we are going to look at the birthday of Israel in Exodus 19. And so let's just pause for a second because I know that's a lot to digest and let's celebrate the birthday of these two entities, the church and Israel, with this fun little card that I found. Oh my guac, it's your birthday. Oh my guac, yeah, thank you for the woohoo. I really appreciate that, yeah. Anyway, back to our regular scheduled program. I just, I found that and I couldn't help it. I needed to make the PowerPoint and so that's why you got it today. So, so Pentecost is about the birthday of Israel. And in Acts 2, we see that it's about the birthday of the church. 
So here's the thing. Since we read the account of the birthday of the church, let's go ahead and give Israel its airtime. Let's read some of the stuff that the author of Exodus, the writer of Exodus says about Israel's little old Israel, little baby Israel's birthday, okay? This is what he says in Exodus 19. On the first day in the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves, this is just really beautiful, guys. We don't have time to go into it, but just, just, just read these words and allow them to pour over you for a second what he says to Israel. Israel, you yourselves, you've seen it. You've experienced it. What I did to Egypt and how I gently, lovingly, when you couldn't do it yourself, I carried you on eagle's wings and I brought you straight here and positioned you to myself. I brought you close. Now, if you obey me fully, this terms of the relationship that God gives in his law, if you're able to obey me fully and respond in this relationship to my goodness and grace in your life, and you are to keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Though the whole earth is mine, Yahweh says, though every nation under heaven is rightfully mine because I have created them all. He says, you guys, you guys are gonna be different. You're gonna be special. You're gonna be unique. You will be for me a kingdom of priests. You will be for me a holy nation. This idea of holiness means being reserved for a special purpose of God. It means set apart. It means distinct. It means not like the rest of the nations. And after God gives Moses some instructions, later on in the passage, we get the event. We get the birthday of Israel. On the morning of the third day, Pentecost day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. Wow. Meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain, gathered in this one place. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in, say it, with fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, the very voice of God answered Moses. And the Lord the God, the transcendent God of heaven and earth who dwells high above, this God descended to the top of Mount Sinai and he called Moses to the top of the mountain. Now, let me ask you, do you does anybody see some of the absolutely unmistakable parallels between this account and what we read formerly in Acts 2? that absolutely starts to make the stuff that's going on on Pentecost Day in Acts 2 absolutely pop, absolutely pop. So if, if you didn't get some of this, let me, just, let me just show you a couple. Let me just show you a couple things. Let's take a look very quickly, two columns. Let's take a look at the birthday of little baby Israel, okay, in Exodus 19. And then let's look at some of the correlations or the connections that we find, the parallels in Acts 2 with little baby church, right? Oh my guac, it's your birthday. So first and foremost, look at, look what we get. In Exodus 19, 
On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, three days later, is the day of Pentecost. It's the first Pentecost. And in Acts 2 with the little baby church, Luke says, when the day of Pentecost came, again, at one level, they occur on the same day. But here's what's interesting. This word came here in Acts 2 verse 1 is not the normal word you would use in the original language to describe something that is simply coming to pass or, or coming about. Actually, the word in the original language means, check this out, fulfilled. In other words, if you have a number of constituent parts, when something comes about in this way, all these constituent parts are being brought together. These parts are anticipating the fullness and the fulfillment. Like they're longing and pointing forward to something else. And this word is the word that you would describe for taking all the previous instantiations of something and bringing it to the rightful goal, to fulfill it. Guys, do you see? It's almost as if Luke is saying, when the day, when the Pentecost, to which all the other Pentecosts that the Jewish people celebrated throughout their history, including the first one in Exodus 19, when this day, when all those things finally reached the thing that God had intended them to bring about all along, this Pentecost, this day, we get more parallels. Exodus 19, there are 12 tribes of Israel that are gathered, they're assembled in one place, at the foot of the mountain, so that they can meet with God. In Acts 2, we are told that 12 disciples are all together. They're gathered in one place. We are told in Exodus 19 that there was thunder and that there was lightning, all these sensory things going on. Thunder and lightning and a thick cloud over the mountain. In Acts 2, we have a sound like the blowing of a violent wind that filled the house. We also have the sound of languages being spoken, declaring the wonderful works of God and raising Jesus from the dead. Now, here's what's interesting. Over here, this word thunder in the original language in Exodus 19, it's Hebrew. This word for thunder is literally the word that is translated for sound. And this word sound in the Hebrew Bible is used over and over and over again and it is most often translate, translated, check this out, sound, voice, language, communication, tongue. So here in Exodus 19, there is a sound, there is a voice, there is a tongue of creation that thunders the reality of God's presence. And what is this doing? What is this sound doing? Well, the sound here is announcing something. The sounds of Sinai, not the sounds of silence, if you're a Simon and Garfunkel fan, but the sounds at Sinai serve as an announcement. They're signaling something. And they're announcing that God of God, true God, has arrived on the mountain. And so we have to ask the question, what does this sound like the blowing of a violent wind? What do the tongues signal in Acts chapter two? That's right. Those are announcing the arrival of God with his people. And his people then thunder his mighty work of raising Jesus from the dead. Lastly, we have Mount Sinai covered in smoke. Why? Because the Lord descended on it in fire. In Acts chapter two, all of them saw what seemed to be tongues of fire 
that descended, that separated and came to rest. The word in the original language literally means to make its home in, to dwell in, to become comfortable relationally in. These tongues of fire that symbolize what? God's good, fiery, pure presence. And it comes to rest where? Not on a mountain, not in a building like a temple or a structure. Do you see this? It comes to rest on people, on human beings, the disciples of King Jesus. Now guys, these parallels, is not this mind-blowing and does not it make Acts chapter two, what's going on here, click all the more. But there is, for all the parallels, right, there is one more component of the Exodus narrative in Exodus 19 that I think is absolutely pivotal to unlocking the missional arc of Israel's story and its connection or its correlation to the birthday of the church in Acts chapter two. And this phrase that's I think absolutely pivotal to understand is found in Exodus 19 all the way down here in verse six. It is this phrase, kingdom of priests, kingdom of priests. Yahweh wants to take this hapless, helpless group of nobodies in the eyes of the ancient world. He wants to bring them to himself, be their God, and he wants to transform them into this, into a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests. Yahweh wants to make them priests. Now, listen, for all that could be said about what this means, here is what we need to know. Here is something vitally important. As priests, the entire nation of Israel, it's the entire kingdom, all the people, not some subset of the people, not some class. Yahweh says, I wanna make you all priests. And as priests, all of Israel is therefore going to be responsible to do what priests do. And, and what is it, guys, that priests do? Well, fundamentally, priests mediate. They stand in between. And priests have relationship with two parties that are separated. Priests have a relationship with party number one. They get to know them. They do the same thing with party number two. They relate with them so that what? There's a task associated with this, right? So that they can take what they know about both and they can translate the language of each party to bring these two parties closer and closer together in relationship. They are to stand, Israel as a kingdom of priests, is to stand in between God on the one hand to nurture the relationship, to grow in their understanding of who he really is and what he really desires, and also to nurture the relationship with the nations and the cultures around them so that they could translate the nearness and the availability of God's relational presence that they enjoyed at the mountain and they can offer it to those who weren't there, who need it. And this happens in two phases, right? First and foremost, as priests, Israel is to tend to, they're to cultivate, they're to nurture their relationship with God so that they can do the second massively important thing that's associated with a mission and a task. They are then called by that God to share the goodness liberally, to share that relationship with the nations so that the nations too could know that God is present, that he is relational, that he is loving, and that he is for them. So the nations might come close to live with God as well. 
I just love the way one Old Testament scholar talks about the absolute pivotal importance of the kingdom of priests concept in Exodus chapter one. He says, it's impossible to read the Exodus or to read Exodus 19, four through six without calling to mind the phrase in the text that Israel was to be God's priesthood in the midst of the nations. A term he says, rightly, implying a representative and a mediatorial role. Israel, check this out. Israel is going to be the how. They're going to be the means by which they're going to bring the knowledge of an available relational God to the nations. Just as their own priests within the nation taught the law of Yahweh to the people within that nation. And ultimately too, Israel would ultimately bring the nations into relationship, into covenant fellowship with Yahweh, just as their own priests within the nation for the people would enable them as sinners to find healing and rescue and reconciliation, to find atonement and forgiveness of their sins and to find restored fellowship through the sacrifices, through their sacrificial system. Now don't miss this. Israel's very existence in the earth, the reason why God called them and gave them and said that, gave them the role and said they were unique and different and special and distinct among the nations was not for their own personal privilege. Israel's very existence in the earth, man, this was for the sake. It was for the sake of the nations because Yahweh wants the whole earth to know who he is. He has gone to the greatest lengths to do this. And he calls Israel out to be the mediating means by which his presence and his availability of relationship would come to be known in all places. I mean, if you think about this, I mean, what a dignified task. What a noble purpose and identity. But for as much as it is dignified and powerful that Yahweh would choose to take this group of people and work through them to bring his blessing and life into the world. For as much as that is powerful, when you read the rest of the story of Israel throughout the Old Testament, you discover that simultaneously this responsibility shows a tragedy. Because when you read the story, you see time and time again that Israel rejects their great identity before God. And they close themselves off to why it is God constituted them as his very own people in the first place. Time and time again, Yahweh would plead with the people of Israel through his prophets. He would indict them by saying, you've, you've turned this missional identity that I've given you and blessed you with. You've turned this thing radically upside down. Because rather than proclaiming the character and the availability of God to the nations in their own tongues, in their own dialects, in ways that they could understand. Israel instead just keeps quiet. They say, look, look at how much better we are than the nations. Look at our privilege. God himself is in our midst. He's not in the temples of the nations. So God is in our midst and we should go out of our way to keep it that to keep God for ourselves. And listen, when you come to the end of the story of Israel in the Old Testament in the book of Malachi, you just have to ask this question. Well, well, if God wanted to make himself known to the nations and his plan and his purpose was to do it through this group of people, and if this group of people has rejected that vocation, what is God gonna do? 
what is God going to do? How is he going to get the reality of the fact, geez, guys, he wants to make himself known throughout the world. How is he going to get this done? Now, as I've reflected on this, this painful question that we ask, how is God going to respond? What's he going to do? I couldn't help but be taken back to the fact that like in the course of my life, I have uh, been uh, privy to or I've experienced what is nothing short of like a radical growth and progress of technology that has occurred in my lifetime. And much of technology, I think, is today centered around the internet and the proliferation of knowledge that lies all the way throughout the known world. And really the goal of the technology in, uh, like in the internet was to take all the information that you couldn't access before. You'd either have to go to a library or you'd have to like say yes to the door-to-door salesman who was selling you the Encyclopedia Britannica. Like if you wanted knowledge, if you wanted to know, if you wanted the presence of the wisdom and knowledge that you needed on any given subject, formerly you had to go to a library, you had to do all those kind of things. But I, I began to realize that like in the course of my life, the, technical, uh, the technological advancements that allowed me to have access to an infinite amount of information and knowledge is nothing short of astounding. Like, so for instance, I'm 42 years old. I was born in 1980. Some of you are like you're old. Some of you are like you're young. I'll just call myself middle-aged. So I was born in 1980. And around about 1994 or 1995, um, my parents bought this crazy little thing. It was this box And uh, we put it in the corner of our living room and we set it on top of a desk. And somehow, some way, this box became the presence and the access to any information, all the worldwide information that was known in the world, right? Let's just say the presence of what I needed to know, the presence of the internet had taken up residence in this small box called a computer, and I remember initially, like my first like foray into the internet was, it was awesome. We fired up our Acer 1995 Acer computer. The tower was massive and the screen like took up the entire corner of the room, right? The monitor did. But I remember jumping online for the first time. Any of you remember jumping online with AOL and dial up? You, yeah, you remember that? Like, <laughs> some straight out of R2D2 or something like that, like. But I remember like being astounded for the very first time. I have access. The presence of worldwide information is right here. And you guys remember, like, think about how fast technology progressed, right? Soon, very soon, several years after that, we dumped the dial-up and we went to high-speed internet, which was nothing short of a veritable like Mount Sinai experience of computation or something like that. So I remember getting high-speed internet, like, whoa, it used to be that one song took 10 minutes to download. Now I can download an entire album in one minute. And then we progressed even further to get more and more information, the availability of more and more information, access, access, access. We progressed even further, and we cut the cord, right? We cut the cable, like birthday, never mind. Uh, We cut the cable, right? And so we went from the Ethernet to Wi-Fi. We had an exodus from the Ethernet, and we went into the good promised land of Wi-Fi. Think about it, all this progress was great to give us more access, more access, more access, more access. But if you think about it, even with Wi-Fi, even with Wi-Fi, we were still limited by geography, weren't we? We were still limited. Access was conditioned on how close you were to a box or to a building that contained that box, right? But that was until the decisive moment when I got a system update on this device right here, my smartphone, And I remember going into my system preferences and there was a new line item, a new option that had appeared. And this line item or this option was nothing short of what we call 
the mobile hotspot. Glory be to God, right? The mobile hotspot. Now, if you think about this, this mobile hotspot was absolutely revolutionary, wasn't it? Because even if you didn't have a phone, even if you didn't have immediate access in that phone in your pocket, what did you need to do now to get access to the information you needed through the interwebs? What did you need to do? Right, you didn't need to go to a building. You didn't need to go to a box. You didn't need to spend $16 on a latte just to get access. No, instead, to get access to what you really needed, to the presence of worldwide information, you simply needed to come into close proximity to somebody who carried this in their pocket, to somebody who was a mobile hot spot. Now, guys, as we start to wrap things up here, we return to the question, what is God going to do to get his message of availability and access out to the nations? Well, first and foremost, someone said it earlier, he's gonna send Jesus, his son, to become like us. Jesus, who is God of true God, yet human of true human, 100% God, 100% man, to mediate the presence of God for us on our behalf, to die and to rise again. But what is this risen Jesus going to do? How is God going to advance the story of his desire to make himself known among the nations? Well, God advances the story forward and he in effect creates mobile hotspots of his presence, right? I mean, in Acts 2, the fire that symbolized God's very dwelling with his people in his people doesn't rest on a mountain. It doesn't rest in a box, not a structure, not a building. Where does it rest? Do you guys, do you see this? God's relational presence rests on followers of Jesus. Isn't that wild? And the tongues of fire, it's weird. I grant you that. But the tongues of fire are signaling something. They're maintaining that God himself is living inside of a group of people. And that wherever this people goes to the ends of the earth, he desires to make himself available. You see, at Pentecost, Jesus, who is God of true God, Jesus becomes personally present with the church, with his followers, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God's relational presence. And this is for the purpose, not of some personal, religious, or spiritual experience, but God has the ultimate purpose to indwell followers of Jesus by the Spirit so that he might empower them by that same Spirit so that they can make him known to people he wants to know in relationship. I mean, for crying out loud, this is what Jesus prepared the disciples for one chapter earlier. When in Acts 1.8, he said, you're gonna receive power, the power of the Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now, is that power simply to enjoy a spiritual mystical experience with the disciples and God? No, he says, you're gonna receive power to be my witnesses, to declare with your lips and with your lives the reality of the risen Jesus and his work in the world. You're gonna be my witnesses everywhere, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all the way to the ends of the earth. Jesus says that the spirit fills his followers so that they might thunder with the mighty works of God to those around them. That his followers would be carriers of God's presence everywhere they go. 
And so this means that if you follow Jesus, you guys got to see two really important things. If you are a follower of Jesus, number one, you are God's chosen people. It's you. God of true God descends and he dwells in you. You are his son. You are his daughter. He is your father. You have ready access. You are in the family of God. You are God's chosen people. This is why Paul in Romans 8 can talk about God sending the spirit of his son into the hearts of believers so that we can cry out, Abba, Father, and that we can know deeply that there is nothing in all of creation that could separate us from the love of that father in Christ Jesus. You need to know your identity, that you are the people, you're the people of God. But lest we be like Israel and forfeit the vocation that comes with it, you are God's people for a purpose. You are a kingdom of priests. You're priests. You carry and you tend to and you cultivate God's presence so that you can make the reality of his desire to be known, actually known in the world around you. And so with these truths, we might then ask as we shut it down, What's the practical application, right? What do we do with this? Because we're still maybe living at 30,000 feet. It's powerful because it's what scripture teaches. But what do we do with this? What is the three steps that help make me a better priest tomorrow? Now, you ready for my application? All right, you guys ready? I don't have one. (laughs) I don't. I don't have an application. And that's not because I don't think they're important. It's not because I didn't try to think one up. But actually, I think in light of what God is teaching us, teaching me at least in Acts chapter two. I don't think I want you to do anything. I'm sure there's work to be done. We want to do that. But this morning, I don't want to ask you to do anything. Instead, this morning, I just want to invite you to see differently, to see differently. And particularly in two ways, to see God differently in light of Acts two and to see yourself differently if you are a follower of Jesus. I'm just putting maybe a couple of suggestions on how to position ourselves towards seeing differently. Number one, that we would see God differently. That we would see that in light of the great lengths that God has gone to get himself out to the world around, that God is not most fundamentally torqued off, irritated, depressed at what you've done, dissatisfied with you. He's not angry. He's not predisposed to be angry with you. Instead, God's character is predisposed that he is gracious toward you, longing to lavish you with the gift of his presence. And let me just say, if you are not a follower of Jesus in the room, you need to hear this more than anything else. God has moved heaven and earth to come to you. He wants to give you the gift of himself. It's what you long for. It's that It's that not in the pit of your stomach that you experience continuously because you long to relate. You were designed to relate with this God. Know that this God is available to you. He wants to make his home in you when you say yes to Jesus, when you trust the provision that he has made in Christ. And when you do that, you will be filled with the Holy Spirit of God to be connected with him, to reach the destiny that God has for your life. That God is gracious, he's compassionate, he's most fundamentally loving, he's for you. 
He's not against you. That God has moved heaven and earth to come to you. First and foremost, this is what we celebrate every Christmas. That Jesus, God of true God, comes down, he takes on flesh to be with us, to reveal the true character and the true heart of the God of heaven. But when Jesus ascends, that we see that God continues to move heaven and earth to come to his people continuously by giving them the gift of the Holy Spirit to make known in their hearts that they're God's children and to be ignited to take God's presence to the world who needs it. That God is on a mission to dwell with you and maybe not just with you side by side, but Acts 2 says, guys, he wants to dwell in you. He wants to dwell in you. And if we see this God differently, we should see ourselves differently over followers of Jesus. That we are designed not to keep this relationship to ourselves. We're first designed to cultivate that relationship, the presence of God within us as priests. Because if we don't know God more and more, how are we going to be able to thunder his mighty works in the language of the nations? You might ask, well, how do we do that as followers of Jesus? Well, I would submit to you this. When Peter preaches a sermon in Acts 2, at the very end, those who are cut to the heart and respond and put their faith in Jesus, what is the first thing that Luke tells us they do? He says in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which is what we find preserved for us in God's word, the Bible. They devoted themselves to fellowship, community, relationships, to the breaking of bread, gathering together with other followers of Jesus. And they devoted themselves to prayer. Guys, these are not have-tos. These are not musts. These are not requirements. They're not a law like at Sinai. They're invitations. They're the rhythms of relationships so that we as God's people might cultivate the reality of his presence within us. And then finally, to see that you are not simply designed to sit and be with Jesus all the time. That's great. It's important. It's vital. It's the first step. But that you are designed to be empowered and equipped to bring God's presence actively and to bring his blessing into the world, to be a mobile hotspot of God's presence. I'll leave us with this. The same Peter who preached the sermon in Acts 2 also said this in 1 Peter 2 about followers of Jesus. He said, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones in a new spiritual temple where God dwells are being built into this spiritual house to be what? A holy priesthood. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Guys, you're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You are God's special possession. But there's a purpose. It's God's missional purpose. That you would do something that you would declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now, because of Jesus, because of the spirit, you're the people of God. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we come to you and we are first and foremost grateful for this amazing thing that you have preserved for us in your word that you have spoken about your mighty acts throughout history to bring people, lost people, hurting people, the nations all throughout the globe to yourself. So Father, we first want to thunder your mighty work, your character, your goodness, 
your grace, your compassion. The fact that even though we were rebellious and sinful, even though we still are and we have some tendencies that way, that you move toward us and you are relentless to do so. So Father, we praise you and we say thank you for who you are, that you're not angry, you're not frustrated, that you long to see us come to know you. And that has been your goal since the dawn of time. And Jesus, we come to you right now and we say also thank you for being the place where heaven and earth meet, for having God, the fullness of God, as Paul will say in Colossians, the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form. Jesus, we thank you for the example that you clarified who God truly is and you showed that it was possible for a human being to have the fullness of God dwell in them. And Holy Spirit, we just want to acknowledge that you are a wonderful gift. We want to acknowledge that if we're your followers, that you're in us, you're empowering us and you're working in us to to make known the reality of the relationship that we have. But Holy Spirit, we maybe just ask, would you do something in our church? Would you do something in us as followers of Jesus for those of us who call, for those of us who name the name of Jesus? Would you do something in us to ignite us afresh to the missional responsibility of what it means to be your chosen people? Father, we're asking you that even as we sing and as we declare your praises, would we be willing to do that beyond this building, beyond this room? Would we be willing to see ourselves as mobile hotspots of your presence to cultivate relationship with you and to share the goodness of who you are to the nations? Pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.